Well, we are recording, but what I'm going to end up doing is stitching all the poetry together at the beginning, and it'll just be poem after poem after poem with whatever... I mean, you said it was against your religion yesterday to do a preamble, but if you would like to do any preambles... Well, that's why I wrote a preamble for you, so that I wouldn't waste your time and energy, (laughs) because this is what I was going to say to you anyhow. Cool. Let's do it. Okay. Except I can't see it because there's no light. Oh. You live in a cave. So here's what I have to say to you, Mitch. Okay. Stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Hogwash. Stories come from anywhere and go to everywhere. They're intricately intermingled. Everything and all things together are stories. No wonder I can't write down all the stories that appear to me. Poems can be stories, of course, and must be. But poems are condensed verbal music and can't allow for every microscopic detail. Aphorisms are condensed pearls of wisdom, summary statements smoothed into pills that we don't choke on, useful thoughts like mottos. Aphorisms can come to mind repeatedly and become mantras. A few of my most useful have popped up frequently throughout this poem of my life. All thought is wordplay. Don't bother me with the facts. I only care about the truth. Everything in the universe falls smoothly into place if you just don't mess with it. As I grabbed a bouquet of my poems to read with you today, I realized the string of them made a sort of flowing story of my life. I'll read as effectively as I can until my stupid smartphone tells me to stop. Then you can tell me what you heard. I thank you for that service and offer to reciprocate in someday soon. As these jumped into my hand, I think they did it. It's random, but almost chronologic way so I'm not going to explain it I'll just read like you asked me to gee that's funny you asked me to do something I'm going to try to do it (laughs) oh make my anonymity complete defeat the cold despair of mediocrity with utter mediocrity Oh, sweet oblivion. Hello.
When I look down and see the papers white, unblemished, quite, and absolutely pure, and know that nothing from this evil pen will be erased or go away again, I know myself, of this I'm sure. This is a sonnet I shall never write. My fear may be what holds me from within, but what constrains me from outside myself? I'd never say that drinking is a sin, but bottles stay much fuller on the shelf. I'll trim my writing desk all in black crepe, mourn Psyche's sad condition. To escape from this conundrum, there's one hope, I think. Pour whiskey in the pen and drink the ink. Either or, think or feel. Listen to me then. Solid, scintillant, thin, horizontal planes in little layers, laminae of heat, hot, brittle, fluid, bright, tinkle sharply on my ears and face, flip my flame-pierced eyelids, blinding, binding white this very late spring day 60 years ago. It reverberates as clearly now, no interval between. I sit in the middle of the schoolroom at my desk, paralyzed, constrained, nodding off in nowhere here between silent choking heat within or the flow outside of sleepy breeze where silent birds pop tree to tree, abrupt intervals of simultaneity, snapshot birds first there, then here. Vertical, skinny, transparent wall of ten-foot wavy glass, endlessly staring upward, dizzy sky. I am frozen here between, and somehow it is crystal clear I have a choice how I can live on one side or the other. To think or feel, not both. Feel cool breeze and freely swim within it, or frozen hot here, cerebrate upon it, generate my own white heat within me, melt down red but stay a centered molten lump held in by my own gravity. Solipsistic arrogance tries to stare down all creation, glaring back at the original explosion, the bottom of the beginning, my own dark red face stares down the face of God, that tin god of my own conceiving. Modeani lefanecha, I thank you to your face. So a mere 60 years older, the universe has not changed, and God has not stopped chuckling at my serious attempts to knock the dents out of the universe she so shoddily concocted. God seems blithely satisfied with her imperfect universe. She leaves me arm-wrestling again against myself, struggling blindly between arduous attempts to think and willing relaxation into feeling. That is exactly what it means, Heraclitus, the difference between passion and action.
These are the cycles of all sentient beings to form the world or to live in it. These are the differences between my saying, let there be, and gratefully to say, here am I. No wonder you are grumpy, my dung-smeared Greek little brother. For as I have, you have popped between thinking and feeling, action and passion, tense burning ardor, serious and altruistic, independent, singular, cerebral, rational, orderly, scientific, philosophical, Parmenidean misery, and on the other hand, I see my other self. Through its hungry baby tears, it cheeps, it flutters feathers, depends on mom, depends on worms to nurture it, warm, not incandescent, fluffy in its nest, mindlessly alive, a chick, this baby me. I am 60 years older now, a frail old bird. I was defiant as a youth. I am ready now to leave it be. I am ready now to be myself this final moment. The universe will get along without me. And white is such refreshing death. So winter, cover me with snow. Freeze out the red, compress it blue. Bright, violent torment, let me go. Gray rain in Boston never seems to want to fall, hangs in the sky for days, spreads smoothly everywhere, misery. Some rains, some other places, fall fully, fall freely, cleansing the sky, purging the air, sweeping the sidewalks for spring. Rain in Boston would be Hamlet, but no tragedy here, no climax, indecision, unending gloom, melancholy, dark, wet. My father believed in science. He studied all of it in college, knew who discovered what and when. Why were we bored? Perhaps we sensed the truth was far beyond him. So we didn't know, but something didn't settle. The truth he didn't speak was this. One night at the table where spilling led to killing, he showed the congregation sun, earth, moon in motion, something of eclipses, salt the earth, pepper moon, and sugar bowl the sun. What I remember is sugar bowl sun spewing crystal powder, how it spun and arced across the room a victim of his lecture. And I, from birth immobile, moved so quickly, I outpaced the sun, caught it midair by the handle. Stupid sun, unconscious, moved to save the pedant father from the mortal sin of spilling.
spilling. Lecture abruptly suspended. For a patient maintained on methadone. Over and over and over and over and over and over and over, you have overlooked me. Each day I see you and see you in a new way. I look to someone new in you and speak. Each day you pretend to listen and prey on me repeatedly. I understand something of how you feel, especially that you suspect I prey on you, that I repeat my rap on you over and over and over and over and over and over and over. You may never see me clearly. I have no lease on reality, but I think you're crazy. You think I'm dull. I don't trust you to be anything but unreliable, self-centered with little self to center. But I love you, and you know I love you. I give you not enough because nothing is enough, and I do not give you nothing. So slowly and dully, I give nothing to you in moderate doses, wishing you would take something instead of nothing. The daylight truth is less extreme than versus version. We take turns in trusting and in giving, and who I wish you be is no different from who you wish you were. But when you become more whole and leave me, I will miss you less than when you first came to me and were most distant from me. And when you leave me and are more yourself, or broken, go to heaven. I will know you better than myself and will have been a better mother for you than my own had been for me. Sneaky snake talks, ticks. Let time be another's patient pet boa. I will be deprived of such company. I do not wish from its torpor that it of a moment animate itself and at a gulp engulf my own dear furry feelings. Let me be the little bird who sharpens her beak on the mountain. Let me wear immensity away with my tiny gluttony for truth. It is in truth I feel real, ring true, in harmony with the universe, immense beyond time. Time is the imaginary playmate of the selfish by whom they will be devoured. The immensity of timelessness is now, my beloved now my mother who nurtures me and tickles me as if I were the warm and furry pet, the cooing bird. I am the cold, shiny, silent, immense snake who will wake hungry, devour absolutely everything at a single, easy, greasy gulp.
so short life. Ars longa vita brevis indeed should be hobios brachus hated techne e macre. Not much left, ragged, breathless. Like the Turin Shroud, perhaps, a record of some slice of history and images which transcend history as we speak of it. Scars and wrinkles, silver hairs, cropped beard, bowed head, held by trembling hands, feet swollen asymmetrically. I have watched too many of my friends die. I still have many friends, but not a lot of life to gaze beyond. So tonight, I consider my past my plenum, and I do not cry. The simple truths are still the truth. They are clearer to me now than ever before, but rather flat, they are laid before me, album pages. I have no advice to give you, just as I wandered my own way and stumbled off, and you will stagger yours. You wouldn't follow me even if I bribed you. I'm not so lonely to try to drag you with me. I'm not comforted by memories, just fiddle with them because they are here in my ragged pocket. Whoops, there's a hole in my pocket. My memories have slipped down my pant leg and gone. So long. Well, Mitch, I can't read these things. Why not? I'm sick of them. But some of them are important, so I'll read them. God, I hate this. It's too instructive. These next two are long and stupid. You're going to really hate the interview after this, then. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Ananke, Greek for necessity. Since freedom is your only value, let us together seek it now. First, set aside the American dream, whatever that may be. It cannot come again. Freedom is not supported by the structures of society, can't be suffused by dramatic historic myth as if it were an inflatable plastic doll, nor can it be contended for in a political arena. Athenians hoped for freedom for their few as long as their military might brought wealth and slaves. They had no choice but to kill Socrates, who was free before and after imbibing hemlock. Since freedom is your only value, let us seek it in churches where liberation of your soul is preached. It cannot be so, for the preacher is praying that you behave the way you are told. His own soul, he hopes, will go to heaven, but in the meantime, his manson stipend will reinforce his self-righteousness as comfort for the sacrifice of liberties he made on the altar of ego. 
Institutions, even informal commercial ones like martial arts schools, are part of the market and the regulatory web in exchange for tuition fees handing out certificates. No school will teach you to be free. Perhaps freedom can be personal only, but freedom cannot be found in interpersonal relationships. Martial arts are appropriate to marital relationships. We have not found your freedom, seeker, in society, its institutions, the schools, the marketplace, or in contractual relationships, Jean-Jacques Rousseau be damned. But now that we divest ourselves of hope, we feel lighter, and lighter float aloft where we can see something of what is with open, pale, unseeing eyes. We see the chains were never ours, just on us, and they are too heavy to follow us as we arise. Freedom is divestment of expectation to have anything and divestment of the willingness to blame another for one's, or oneself for what is not. Having floated free, I can now face your face, freely kiss it, not take a kiss, but leave one, and I can go to church or school or court, invite my silent friend, the God of spirit and wisdom and justice. I can go into the marketplace as free as Socrates, not to buy or sell to make a profit, but to walk and talk in community with free spirits. Divested of necessity, I am free to live as long as I know I am bound to die. Summer in Sumer. Hot and cold and hot. Again and always I reach back for a beginning, a cool source. In my thinking, it is easy to get stuck in Athens or Alexandria, but there must be something deeper something older in me. The heat rises from what I thought an old dead oven, a mere archaeologic curiosity, the Babylonian volcano. I try to hide from the news, but the news is full and floods me with today's implacable hostilities in what are called Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, and the new old nations recently provinces of the Soviets. See Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, and the rest of that old heap of cities layered in innumerable laminae of archaeologic redundancy among the Mediterranean Sea and the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean. Heat radiates through North Africa and deep into Europe, Bosnia and reaches like a volcanic seam of the Earth's overcoat beneath vast oceans to this urban ruin where all ancient peoples now live. New York City.
What are these places to me who have never been there in this lifetime? Who are these people fighting blindly, deadly fighting anyone, each other? It is not that they are Islam, except in some sense superficial, merely current. Islam, it seems, values valor in killing as much as any killing culture, any men's club ever. It is not Islam any more than it is the loving Christians who butcher and rape Islam any more than it is the erstwhile meek and peaceful Jews. This is the brutality of all humankind's most ancient and religious warfare, which predates any nation. It is the commonly cherished brutality which made those peaceful Jews kill every one of Sisera's soldiers and then every one of Sisera's soldiers' horses. So there really was a river of blood. And the Jews stood in it to their waists, righteously rejoicing. I wasn't better off in Athens, which in its literature drank Trojan blood for thousands of years from Homer to today. The blood of those Trojan blood brothers of these Athenians, Lacedaemonians, and many other nests of Greeks who, like the Irish, killed each other also. Nor did the killing stop when Greek literature was incinerated in the demolishing of the library at Alexandria. The cold heat of my privation I still feel, racked by a deep chill. Mourn the loss of the books more than I mourn the loss of the temple at Jerusalem. This summer I feel hot hostilities, blind and deadly, radiate from the belly button of my own human civilization, from Persia and Babylon and Macedonia and all the other huge warrior kingdoms I thought in my childhood were long ago dead. I feel hot heat, and I remember it is I who retains hot anger. I who is willing to kill from before the beginning of the nations, from my earliest emergence, eking existence somewhere in Africa, I became willing to kill the one who stood beside me, who confronted me as the image of myself, unrecognized as such. I came to kill myself in the mirror long before I made the first mirror. Now what? Have I come to kill you too? That's a good one. That's a really good one. You political pawns who think that it's poetry to piss on the poor and adulate the aristocrats. Hmm. I just made all that up. Yeah, of course, that doesn't actually happen, right? That's a myth. The, the truth comes in simple little things like this one. Paul Gauguin. 
Snow comes softly sometimes, deeper than it sounds. It covers sins, maybe even wishes. Innocence in snow, knee-deep in crystal innocence. This summer I wish snow. Next winter I may wish to go to Tahiti or some slow nowhere where warm winds blow, tides flow strongly, rhythmically, go into stinging rains streaming down and steaming up once more. No rain now, but on Tahitian shore snow blows in dunes and muffles tropic tunes. Crystal music mingles with the breeze and innocence and sins and wishes freeze. Small girl flies through grass among flowers, spins, calls them out of the ground with her dance. Leave dreams be. They sting you if you stir them. Leave dreams undisturbed. The human brain is huge, unuseful. The simple truth of being is in breathing, eating in the writhing air about you without cheating, without lying, without faking it, without making faces, without wasting energy or effort. Or for what eat and breathe? For what grieve? What have we each lost when tossed about by death, our intimate professor, to take, then give away a final breath? Leave dreams be dreams and seeming. Take death with me between your teeth and suck it flat and sharp and sweet. A cat joke. <clears throat> there are in my bed dead bodies. I am not surprised. I have denied death and now it has come to haunt me. I've lived with ghosts my teachers speak hollowly from the grave with subtle humor. But this is not subtle nor humorous to me, dead bodies in my bed. How do these cats expect me to rest easy, curled around the spots where they have peed, or sleep coiled around these corpses they have dragged to me out of the library? Cats coo and crow, groom themselves aloofly, groom each other, yawn. They have exhumed my mentors and my long-gone lovers, strung them out on the bed, some subtle cat joke. Belongings. I gave up on belongings. 
those colorful things that hang on the walls and fill the shelves. I thought I would have whatever in the world is not my own. The sky, the trees, the wind churning color from the face of the lake into the faces of children playing. I thought I would give up on belonging, stand outside whatever circles we humans draw in the ether to make one group good, another bad. I thought I would stand outside good or bad and let anyone be with me. I wished for no belongings or belonging, got no belongings or belonging. Occasionally I have had a longing for home, but there is no home. What I share with you is the wish not for things or places or faces, but for the human truth, which in its cold neutrality does bundle all together us lonely nomads, rays reaching out, big human family. When your tape melts, I'll have another drink. All right. You're going to regret this ring. Skipping stones. Skipping stones find depth never to return to daylight nor to air. When we with energy and directedness exert ourselves bouncing off the surface, certainly we are something spectacular to see. I hope someone is entertained thereby. But soon we sink powerless into the drink, undistinguished from innumerable unseen pebbles sunk to the bottom of the muck. I write poems like this one as if to skip my smooth little stone over the surface of fluid truth to surmount it for a moment. Sometimes, six or seven bounces later, inevitably, I fall inert, spin down, done. My mastery of truth and beauty has been ephemeral. The waters close over me without a scar. I am left wet and cold to ponder the only truth remaining to me the honest, unaware being at the bottom of the pond, at rest, at last. I'll not read Rearview Mirror. It's entirely too long, even though it's a poem that tells a story. Fair enough. Uh, I'm not trying to be merciful to me. I'd like to be merciful to you. I have my limitations. Some days I regret them. Um, one of those parenthetic notes that I don't like. Hmm. Charles Reznikoff was my cousin, the poet. Pete Contos has a long story which I've sketched out, but his wife and daughter won't confirm it. They won't even talk to me about it. When I ask them if I lied, they won't answer the question.
Charles Reznikoff, 1894-1976 to at Pete's Kitchen, established 1942. Dear, quiet cousin Charles, frail, pale, delicate, sits on the stool next to me, sipping coffee, contemplating carefully a next line in the poem of my life. Action on the street, evening traffic in the whirling snow, and action on the stage before us, the great and greasy griddle from which in timely order dance pancakes, steaks, and omelets. It is the audience interests us, these very various who sit quietly in booths or leaning elbows on the counter. They smoke or don't, sip coffee or gulp it. Each brings from his direction of travel or from the depths of her biography's reservoir a special taste, a particular order from the same old items on the same old menu. Short orders must be made a certain way. Right now, this hot moment in cold evening. Eggs over easy, bacon crisp, toast dry. He is long dead, I too long alive. He lives in simple human truth. I vacillate and agonize. We share the complex mundane scene, smile at each other knowingly and wonder. They are a feast for our souls, these humble diners. Had already published a couple of the editions of the White Dove Review that uh, Kerouac and, uh, what was that drunk in California's name? Uh, Charles Bukowski, yeah. And... Uh, probably Alan and others sent them to him because it was such a good little journal that was done by high school students. So wow. they thought that that was okay to send some old moldy poems yeah. to a high school kid. Oh, I was going to get to the point. There are no points. Everything is round. <laughs> I said, Ron, tell me about poetry. He said, Nathan, there's no such thing as poetry. Mm. Only the poem. Mm. Several years later, upwards of 35, my son called from college to, I don't know whether he wanted money or wanted somebody to come pick up his laundry or whatever it was. Um, and he said, among other things, that he was taking a course in poetry <laughs> from Ron Paget. I said, well, tell him who your aunt and your father are. You, we were good friends in high school. No. So I dropped it because you don't argue with your kid because he's bigger than you are. 
And uh, I thought, well, it'll sort itself out. Ron probably knew who he was the moment he laid eyes on him mm. without even knowing his name. So it's not a big deal for me to say anything. Was my son bashful? Yeah, kind of. He wasn't bashful so much as he was arrogantly isolated. Mm. <laughs> That's a new one. So, so he called me one day, and he said, Dad, can I make an appointment with you? To have a telephone call. I said, we're on the telephone now, go right ahead. <laughs> He said, no, I've got to do a research paper. And I have to have you on the telephone at the language lab at the high school. I mean, it made sense to me later. I didn't understand what he said then. You can't record a telephone call without fancy equipment, mm -hmm. like, like a tape recorder and mm -hmm. stuff like that. So... Uh, I let him make an appointment with me to have a telephone interview. But not until I said, you know, you could find better people. Oh, I know. Good, I always mess up stories. I always forget punchlines and all that kind of stuff. I love it. It just shows anyone who is stupid enough to listen that there's no point in anything. It's all round. It's all round. It's not pointed. He said, I'm writing a research paper on what it's like to be at a three-dog night concert or streaking through a stadium with 75,000 people. I said, how would I know? He said, my friend's parents were all hippies. They did those kinds of things all the time. I said, well, no wonder I don't know, because I'm too old to be a hippie. <laughs> then what in the hell are you? <laughs> I, said, I guess uh, if you wanted to, you could call me a beatnik. Mm -hmm. Wow. Nobody's ever heard of that. <laughs> I could say anything I want. <laughs> I said, there are better people to talk to. You like your uh, Uncle Dougie. Uh, Doug Anderson is, knew him very well. Mm. And Doug, had, Doug and Mabel had a coffee house and they had a commune and stuff like that during those days. And they'd be good people to ask. He said no. I said, I'll give you Alan's number. Alan Ginsberg? Yeah. Okay. He said, no. I said, he can't seduce you over the telephone. <laughs> he said, no, Dad, I want to interview you. So that's what we did. 
I don't remember exactly what I said because I didn't say it on purpose, the same mm. as I'm talking to you. I wouldn't say anything on purpose to you. You might understand it. True. Um, I said something like when he asked me, I was in Greenwich Village. I'd hitchhike there from my school in Maryland with my guitar over my shoulder, and I'd get to Greenwich Village, and I'd reach in my pocket, and every time there would be three pennies. And I'd throw one as far as I could in one direction, and I'd throw the other one in as far as I could in another direction, and then I'd take the last one and throw it as hard and fast as I could in another direction. And when the coin rolled down, I was liberated. I'd pick up my guitar, put it on my shoulder, and walk down the sidewalk, paying attention not to the storefronts on the ground level, but to the second floor. And I'd go up to the door of the building, the apartments above the stores, and I'd ring a button. And somebody would say, what do you want? And I'd say, is Charlie there yet? And I'd say, no, he ain't here yet, but come on up, kid, have a beer and a sandwich and wait for him. Then as the night got late, I'd go home with someone, a man or a woman. I'd sleep on a sofa, on a floor, whatever. But me and my guitar wouldn't have to pay for a hotel room. I'm not going to tell you any more stories. Forget about it, Mitch. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Did like, your son write the research paper? Oh, yeah, it was brilliant. He wrote about uh, Bill Burroughs and Jack Kerouac and mm. Allen Ginsberg and a bunch of other people, Deanne DePrima, and, and he did the research, mm -hmm. and he understood. And uh, I don't know whether it was my idea or his, because I didn't memorize his paper, but I hope he got it that. Some of the same persons were hippies who had been beats. Mm. But what changed was not those individuals or the fact that they were sincere artists. But as beats, each of us had her or his own art. Mm. Yeah, we gathered together. Yeah, we respected each other and so forth. But none of us ever told the other one what to draw or write or say or sing or dance. And then overnight, we became hippies. The flower childs had a lot of the stuff that we were working for, but they did stuff on the aggregate level. Mm. This is when poetry, you would say, became what people talked about rather than the poem, poetry. 
Yeah, I guess that's right. Uh, what what did Ron and those other nice people start in uh, right near Cooper Union in New York? That poem reading has been going longer than the Mercury Cafe readings. Wow. Uh, what do you call that? I don't know. I'm demented. My memory won't. <laughs> uh, someday I'll remember, but anyone who's in New York will remember, including some people who read at the Mercury Cafe. Mm. Unimportant. I'm going to read some poems about art and poets because the subject is worthy, even though what I've written is questionable. Faces. The poem is your face. Your words are concrete symbols of what cannot be said, and my words also. Lyrics each of us lifts from her soul, from his lonely torso. It is your face which makes your mutterings articulations. We take each syllable discreetly intended as inward-bended light seen in our ears as in our inner sight. We read the nonsense which is truly I and you, and we know we are braver, not demented, to have vented steamy meeting of lingering foggy dream, to have raved what even Sigmund Freud had craved to hear his friends echo with their listening faces. I consider the delicate lacework of the spider web dew-pearled in the fiery clarity of sunrise. Each aspect of all this a cliché in words, a cliché of image, which my jaded eye refuses to acknowledge. The various dimensions of beauty intertwine in their own lacy way, dazzling my little mind's ability to follow these loops and knots. So the idea itself is a pattern of beauty, and the words which describe the idea make their pattern also, and the phenomena themselves each and all together make other lamina of pattern. Is the bad pattern of beauty somehow regular? Is it so intricate I cannot see it? Or is it so simple, really, despite its myriad nature, that I sense it even when I do not see it? I ask you technical questions about beauty in order to tie a knot between us, which will render us together joined, brother and sister of dewdrop, spiderweb, and sunrise. We analyze it, lose all mastery or perspective, become giddy, dizzy, for whatever beauty is, we are part of it. Art is more than image, sound, or meaning. It is in the sharing which is beyond symbol. 
Do not listen to my words, my tune. Do not scrutinize or memorize my iconography. Art is the transcending of the piece of work, the meeting which the soul of the audience commits with the soul of the artist in the void beyond the work itself. But until we are inspired together to mount to heaven, the work itself must stand here on its own three feet, concrete, mute, and immutable, the context of our timeless meeting. You see, what is real is exactly who you are, unadorned. The only art I can accomplish is to meet you unexpectedly, where neither of us ever was before. A bright future in a dark alley. I'm skipping so many love poems it makes me sick, but I'll get to a final sentence that'll serve for all the love poems that we can think of and we'll be finished. Sure. Wonderful. Not this poem, but the next one. All right. That I'll belch and fart and pass out and stop reading. Is it art? Solipsism, is it? No. Art is not just what is hatched from my own little belly button. It is not just a projection of my own imagination. Indeed, it is drawn out of me by the world around me, not just by the big and forceful things like nature or beauty or humanity, but by each humble particle also, each real lump of mud, each real moment within which I swirl, myself a lump of mud, this mud pie I. And whatever it is we mean when we say art is not just a glob of stuff from which I can snip off a bit and say it is a piece of art, un objet, each artful act is what it is itself, unique. No poem is poetry, no painting art, no statue sculpture, nor a piece of such. And though it is, or else it could not be, it is no discrete thing on its pedestal or in its frame, it comes to be not merely when I paint it, but when you see it. And it is not an other thing when you look at it again, and yet it is not the same for you. Give it something of its sensibility, its shape, its sound, its color, its smell. The words on this page are no accident. They're put here by me quite as I meant to put them here. But words have no meaning. That is, marks on the paper have no meaning in themselves, and even orderly, well-formed letters do not determine sound until you make the sound. 
And none of this means anything until you receive a meaning, and that meaning shifts and spins each time you consider it. And if you refuse to consider it, I am still here, and my very being tugs at you ever so slightly. So no, art is no solipsism merely, for none of us is self-contained. Meaning is between us, as is beauty, not contained only in the eye of the beholder. All this is no gift, for we share it whether we will or not, not by being artists, but by being. Last bee sting. Wordless. What are words worth? What did Wordsworth know? Even I could sell postage stamps between volumes of verses. If the countryside is quiet, syllables can riot in companies against each other and images and ideas follow in no strict order. The quiet beauty of the landscape and the lakes, the morning fog, a silencer, and the dullness of the task of selling stamps and posting mail can leave energy and space for wild Italian visitors and voluminous verse. What is worse, a sheltered life or shattered solitude? The child is father of the man. And convoluted concepts can emerge from flowing words like quietly uprising birds in endless cohorts separate from earth and from the water's surface, facing again and again seasonally the rising of the fog. Words rise in a mist and do not make your heated lips be kissed nor can my endless words create reality from my dull feelings wordlessly alive. Nathan, welcome to The Poets. Thank you for coming and being on the show. Thank you. This is going to be by far, far and away the longest episode so far, but I wish people could see the stack of poetry that we didn't get to because what we were, what, 30, maybe a third of the way through? Chop it off. I only grabbed it to be generous for you. I appreciate that. I didn't do that for me. No, of course. And that's something that I wanted to ask you about because in one of the poems that you read, you said or I think you maybe started out with, I have no advice to give you. You're speaking to the reader there or the listener? I hope not. I mean, I hope I have no advice. Is, is that not advice in and of itself to say I have no advice? I have no disdain for your cuteness. <laughs> I am guilty of cuteness myself many times over. So... If you want to 
If you want me to answer that question, I will, but I'd recommend that you find a more gratifying question for yourself. I told you like these are going to be gonna, trite. who's going to win the World Series or something like that? I don't I told you these questions are going to be trite. That's okay. Um, were you, at the beginning, I don't know if this was on mic, you said that you sort of realized that these poems were a chronicle of your life in a way. Was that intentional when you wrote them, or is this something that sort of emerged? No, just this morning when I was putting them together and trying to sort them in some sort of order, because I have sometimes a bunch of love stuff, a bunch of poem stuff, a bunch of art stuff, a bunch of jazz stuff. So, and uh, so I was thinking that I'd maybe be able to get one or two of each of those mm. sorts of categories i don't live by categories mm -hmm. i don't write by categories so that's because i'm too disorganized my brain doesn't work but if i say that in front of q he gets mad uh, <laughs> i won't speak for q but a lot of people think because i still use many polysyllables they think that my brain has not degenerated but they don't understand that i'm verbally challenged I never learned any monosyllables. That's why I cannot mm. communicate with human beings. That is a unique problem to have. How does that, uh, do, you do, do you try and reach people on that level or do you just sort of say, fuck it, <laughs> you'll follow it or you won't? Okay, so I'll say something different from what I just said and it'll be the same. <laughs> and that is that uh, I went to Emily's sixth grade class with Q. Mm. And what was forwarded to me by Q from Emily or something like that was the sixth graders noticed two things about you that you used words that they'd never heard of. And that your voice went up and down. <laughs> and I understood what they meant by my voice going up and down. And that's because when you're in the sixth grade, you tend to write poems very seriously. And then you read them very sing-song and flat. Because mm. that's, and you make sure that you stop when the rhyming words come mm -hmm. so that people can hear that they rhymed. And stuff well yeah. that's understandable it's just human that's why we applaud so loudly every time at the open mic when someone's reading for the first time the the worse they read the more we clap yeah because we know how much room they have for becoming our favorite mm. poets and performers they just got to keep coming back yeah just don't stop and we do love them and we put up with us um Voice goes up and down. Yeah, the emphasis that you use, like an actor, you don't have to be an actor, but what were actors to begin with? What were philosophers to begin with? What were musicians to begin with? It was all poem, mm -hmm. all of it. Why am I wasting your time? This is not a waste of time. Um, Big words. I don't want to have to apologize for my best friends in school being um, people with 
polysyllabic names like, uh, well, hypochondriasis was not a poet, was he? But how about Parmenides, and how about uh, Heraclitus, and how people run into those words and they have trouble pronouncing. Well, if it happens to be one of your best friends, you remember his name, that's all. Yeah. But if you never met somebody before, you mispronounce his name. It's just, it's no great mystery. Yeah, it's fair enough. Words, polysyllables are economic language. Mm. A good polysyllable serves the same as four paragraphs yeah. otherwise. Yeah. I'm sorry I get defensive. You don't feel defensive to me right now. Do you feel defensive? No, I was playing defensive. I hope I'm not attacking. <laughs> um, one of my chapters, which nobody has ever read, thank God, in my... Uh, small collection of clinical essays, which is only 500 words, or 500 pages, mm. or 500 pounds. Small, I don't remember. tiny, yeah. Is, um, what's the chapter called? Dialogue, Dialectic, Drama. Talking about communicating with a patient. Mm. You'd understand that. A little. That your task as a clinician is to present this dramatic story to the audience of one who's your captive audience and you're telling that person the story of herself. You better be dramatic. Her life is dramatic. Mm. And as you're repeating the same thing she told you about herself... Mm -hmm sometimes told you just with the way she put on her makeup or other kinds of communication. She's surprised, and you're revealing something new and dramatic to her yeah. when you say things like, what was it that that analyst said to me when I was 18? Have you ever thought maybe you drink too much? I never spoke to him again. <laughs> Or if you ask her, the hypothetical nice lady that we just now put on the table, mm -hmm. if you ask her, did you ever think maybe you're depressed? Well, she, the word depressed or depression is a horrible thing for a therapist to use because mm -hmm. it's meaningless because it means so much. Yeah. We all know what it means now. Tell me what it means. You really want me to? Yeah, you'll do what everybody else does. You'll say a bunch of stuff that won't tell what it means. Right, because you can't capture the experience in a clinical description. The bits and pieces of it, you may be able to put a word on. Yeah. But the whole reality of it, just the feeling of your depression in your life or in this moment, or all the different facets of that affliction. There's no way you can comprehend them. You can't get something around them. Sorry, 
Yeah. I thought you were eloquent and elegant and uh, kind and uh, talented and all kinds of good stuff, but you can't do that. No. This is getting into something else I wanted to ask you about because I think you read one and you mentioned that it was one of your doctor poems. So I wanted to ask you sure. how how poetry and, and medicine mesh together and, and why you have doctor poems. Ask William Carlos Williams. William, I don't know who that is. He's a doctor from New Jersey. Okay. Uh, he was a womanizer. He was a buddy of... Uh, of E.E. E. Cummings and Charles Reznikoff, my cousin. And he, he used to drag his friends out uh, in to the city in New York because he's from Patterson, New Jersey, so it took a little effort to go to the city. And they would party and chase women or whatever they would do. And um, so he invited Charles, who was very quiet and very mild and and sweet and all that kind of thing. And he brought uh, Edward Estlin Cummings. I don't know if people called him Ed or whatever. And uh, Cummings was brash, anti-Semitic. Um, he, he, it wasn't that he was a bad guy. He was a very good poet. Very good writer. Yeah. And one of the things that impressed me, well, a couple things. Oh, I could make it 17 things if you had enough tape, but you said there was no tape. Cummings' poem, Buffalo Bill, he retyped, rewrote, rearranged about 100 times. Mm. There's an article in some nice periodical, some uh, poetry journal or something that discusses just that. <clears throat> Hundred different reworkings of this. Buffalo Bill's defunct who used to ride a water smooth silver stallion and break one, two, three, four, five pigeons just like that. Jesus, he was a handsome man. And what I want to know is, how do you like your blue-eyed boy, Mr. Death? Ooh. Ooh. You know, I can almost, I can almost tell that that's the result of a hundred reworkings. And the way it's laid out on the page and the mm. typography. But when I was 11 years old, I heard that there was this grown-up who wrote poems and didn't use periods and commas mm. and used to capitalize letters in the middle of words and stuff like that. And I thought, I'll debunk that son of a bitch. <laughs> uh, so I, I, had a, I got a copy of Cummings' collected poems at, from Lewis Myers' bookstore where Ron Padgett worked when he was in high school. Uh, but I think that was before Ron was in high school because I wasn't in high school yet. And so I took it to a, a seventh-grade kid's party with a flask of gin in my pocket. Uh, and I opened the book at random to prove to these girls, I didn't care about the boys, that this grown-up was like, I, that I'd just blow him away. So mm -hmm. I turned at random to 
This man is oh so, oh no, the title of it is item. Mm -hmm. This man is oh so, waiter, this woman is, and everything seemed chopped up and couldn't possibly make sense except it made sense. And it was an entire drama in a few dozen syllables. I had to shut up and shut my book and take it home and read it. Mm. So you suddenly didn't care about the reaction of the others? It was... Oh, I, st I still wanted to titillate girls. Yeah, of course. Don't we all? But I gave up on debunking Cummings. Mm. So I don't want to bore you, but I'll just... Like, <laughs> You're not boring me. This, if... One shoe drops and another shoe drops. You wait for the third shoe to drop, right? Mm. So in September or so of 1962, uh, actually before that, anyhow, I'm in Greenwich Village uh, with a girl I went to high school with whom I had met with a, she was walking a schnauzer, but it wasn't her schnauzer. I don't think you want to hear all this about the girl. She was a beautiful woman. She was, anyhow. We're sitting in Chumley's. We go in the middle of the afternoon, it's empty. And we're sitting in the booth and we're talking like old friends. We hadn't seen each other in a year or two. And we go on and on and on. And then I hear a voice across the room yelling, Nabokov, Nabokov. And I said, uh, pardon me, uh, I'll be right back. I just got to check on something. So the room had filled up elbow to elbow around us since it was empty and we started talking. But the young man, a young woman talking, the world doesn't exist, right? So uh, I make my way across the room and there's Peter Nabokov toasting mm. himself. Is Vladimir's son. Yeah. Well, maybe Vladimir's son. Ooh. Maybe Bill Darkey's son. Ooh. Peter's mother married Bill Darkey um, sometime soon, uh, like when Vladimir and his wife split or whatever happened. So there's some Bill, Bill was... Uh, um, he was a tutor. He was on the faculty of the college like Vladimir was. But the point is that now Dmitri, his older brother, was almost certainly Vladimir's son. And I never did any uh, genetic testing and didn't have to. But I knew Peter and I admired him. And he had the biggest Indian motorcycle in the history of the world. Um... Anyhow, Peter's there at Chumley's. So Peter and I talked some, and he said that every Saturday night or he would drink in the village. That made sense to me. And that often on Sunday mornings when the sun was trying to come up, he'd go to the Howard Johnson's on 8th Street, I think, and that, as a matter of fact, not long before he had uh, 
seen a guy that was crowded. So he walks in and there's an old guy sitting on the, at a little tiny table uh, having his breakfast and Peter did what I've done with Carl Menninger before, you know, I walk in and raise a left eyebrow to ask him if I can sit down there and stuff like that. And uh, so Peter explained to me that he and this guy had been talking and uh, had a great time and liked each other a lot. And he was glad to know that guy went to Howard Johnson sometimes on a Sunday morning. And, and he went back and the guy was there. So they sit down together. And he said, you know, we had such a good conversation. I really enjoyed it. He said, but I never even asked you your name. He, he said, Cummings. He said, that's the name of a very good writer. He said, and what's your name, kid? He said, Nabokov. He said, that's the name of a very good writer. So Peter said, so the next time you're in New York City, we'll drink all Saturday night and we'll go to breakfast with E. Cummings on Sunday morning and that would be great. And then we got our uh, one copy of the New York Times for the whole college and I opened it up and there is the lower case obituary. Mm. He had died at his grandmother's joy farm in Vermont or New Hampshire, uh, chopping wood, I imagine, or something like that. After all, he was an American male. He should have had a heart attack, right? <laughs> That's true. But I missed breakfast with E. Cummings. Mm. Um, so isn't that dramatic? No, not very. Why did I waste your day? You've not wasted my day. Oh, I've been trying to. I'm going to ask you uh, something that might annoy you. Good. Um, you have a microphone in front of you. Yeah. You are. You have a captive audience, whoever's listening, if they've stuck around this, this long. I'm sure some have. What do you want to say to them? Ain't no chains. And there we have it. Nathan, thank you for doing this. This has not been a waste of time. This has been amazing. I hope people love it. Uh, I love people, that's for sure. So do I. All right, bye, everybody. Oh, oh.